Uh, let's see. I looked at the weather last Sunday and saw rain in the forecast this past week. So I thought, you know, it's going to melt all the snow, going to be able to get the Christmas lights up, going to be able to rake the leaves that we didn't rake before the snow first. You know what I'm talking about, right? And it didn't really rain enough for that. It, it rained enough to change the snow to perfect snowball snow. Yeah? Now, I like snowballs, and I like snowball fights. I realized I used to like them a lot more than I do now because I'm older and because my fingers hurt and because the kids that I play are no longer this size. They're this size. Okay, so when my boys were this size, to start a snowball fight was just a little bit of a risk, right? Just a little bit. Right? You, you don't pack it too tight. You make sure it's nice and fluffy. You toss it at them, and, and they giggle. And best case, they pick up snow and throw it back at you, and that's it. So just a small amount of risk. But then they get to where they're 6'3 and 6'1 and faster than me, and don't tell them, don't listen, stronger than me. Um, and you have to pack the snow a little bit harder, um, and then you've got to throw it and run before it hits them. Because you, you move from just a little bit of risk, right, a little bit of snow tossed back at you to an all-out sacrifice, right? Because if, if they realize what you're doing and they pack the snow and they hit you, it hurts. And if they don't hit you, they catch you and they throw you in the snow, and that hurts. Okay, so we, we go from risk, which is kind of nice, to the potential of sacrifice. Now, I don't know if Jesus ever threw a snowball. I don't know. I think he would if he was in a place with snow. But I do know he encouraged risk, and he actually called for sacrifice. I want to show what I mean in just a second. Let's pray. God, this is your Sunday. This is your day. Uh, We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we want to hear from you this morning. You know, as we're entering into this Christmas season where we remember you coming to earth, we want to make sure that, that we, we hear and listen with ears to hear, uh, eyes to see uh, what you want us to hear and what you want us to see this morning. I pray that anything that I've prepared to share that you don't want shared, help me forget it. And anything that uh, you want shared, may it be your words, not mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. This morning we are going to wrap up the first half of Mark's account of the life story of Jesus. Um, And we're going to see as we go through this chapter that Jesus not only invites risk, he requires sacrifice. Now I kind of dove in headfirst to this chapter, studying this last week, wondering how is it going to fit into this offensive Christianity series that we've been doing. We've been doing this now, this is week number 12, and we've been looking at who's in, who's out. Now by that, if this is your first week, I mean who Jesus engages with, who he loves, who he invites into relationship, who he, uh, who he says experienced the kingdom now to. Now in Mark 8, we see a lot of the things, a lot of the echoes that we've seen so far in the first seven chapters. We see crowds again. We see boat rides again. We see Jesus interacting with the religious elite. We see Jesus interacting with confused disciples. And we see another healing of a blind man with spit. Now, we see all those things. Now, in the first seven chapters of Mark, I really, really was painting the picture of Jesus saying, hey, let, let, me, let me invite you in. Why don't you engage with me? 
Today, by the time we reach the end of this chapter, we're going to see Jesus saying, let's go beyond engaging and let's actually follow. And this is what it means. The first uh, story in Mark chapter 8, I really see as uh, the author picking up just a little bit of snow and making a nice light snowball, just a little amount of risk. All right, follow along with me in your Bibles. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here for, with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how in the world are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Well, seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground, and then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. Now there's a few small fish were found also, and Jesus blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted, and afterwards the disciples picked up seven large basketfuls of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. All right, a little bit of risk. Here's where I see it in this story. They're still in Gentile land because we haven't seen Mark tell us that they left the region of the Ten Towns, which is at the end of Mark 7. So more than likely, this crowd of 4,000 plus had a lot of Gentiles in it. And these Gentiles must have heard of this rogue Jewish rabbi who was doing some amazing things, so they took a risk to go out and see him. Now, when they went out and see him, did they know that they were going to be gone for three days? Did they know that they were going to run out of food? Did they know that they were going to listen to a guy talk for a long time? You guys think I talk for a long time if I hit 30 minutes. I mean, three whole days. But these Gentiles said, you know what? It's worth it for me to not care about what the rest of my Gentiles think. I'm going to go out and I'm going to listen to this guy, and we're just going to stay for as long as we need. They risked, they sacrificed. Just a small amount of risk, right? And it paid off. I mean, yes, they ran out of food, but Jesus went through the drive-thru and got a bunch of fish sandwiches again that he handed out to everybody. Everybody had more than enough, and there were seven large doggy bags full of food after. Simple risk. Make sense? Yes. Let's keep going. Verse 11. And we're going to see this, this risk kind of grow from nice, playful snowball into we're moving towards a full-on sacrificial uh, snowball fight. Verse 11. When Jesus heard that Jesus, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived because he crossed the lake, they came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. How, how do you think that sounded? Anybody? That was good. I don't know where that one came from, but that was good. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back in the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. Verse 14, but the disciples had forgotten to bring any of the food. Did they leave the seven baskets full? Well, come on, guys. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat, and as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. 
Now at this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, why are you arguing about not having any bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I just fed the 4,000, how many baskets of leftovers did you guys pick up? Seven, they said. Well, don't you understand yet? He asked them. You get what's going on? Jesus feeds the 4,000, he dismisses them all again, gets into a boat, goes to the other side of the lake. The religious people come to him, start arguing with him, tell him we need a sign. He gets frustrated, he sighs deeply. Go ahead. Okay? And he gets back in the boat and goes back to, this was not pre-planned, just letting you guys know. It's well done. Uh, gets back, paddles back to the other side of the, the lake, and on his way, on the paddling, he has this cryptic conversation with the disciples that is all about risk and sacrifice. Did you see that in there? You can say no, because I have never seen it in there until this past week. The disciples, though blue-collar men, would have grown up knowing their story, knowing their history, knowing their heritage, and they would have recognized when Jesus was saying something that was actually tied back to their heritage. Now, if you were following along in your Bibles, did you catch the asterisks in that passage? Verse 18, there's an asterisk, which usually means that there's a footnote at the bottom, and oftentimes it means that that's a, a quote from the Old Testament. Verse 18 in our text says, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? And what Jesus was doing was quoting the prophet Jeremiah. God had told Jeremiah to tell the people this in Jeremiah 5, make this announcement to Israel and say this to Judah, listen, you foolish and senseless people with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Now, this was more than just Jesus finding some poetic way to say to the disciples, you morons, don't you get it yet? This was Jesus drawing their attention back to what was going on in that day and age. And what was going on back then? Well, the, the people, much like the Pharisees and Herod in Jesus' day, the people were so caught up with their own concerns that they weren't concerned with anybody else around them. They weren't concerned with the injustice and the wickedness in their society. They were so focused on themselves that God had no other choice but to say, all right, I'm bringing in a group of people who are going to take you over. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, look, don't you get it yet? This is more than picnics and, and parades, more than healings and helping. This is me saying to you guys, you have to be willing to risk. You have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to get outside of yourself to help others so that they can experience the kingdom of God now. This is all that we've been doing so far. For however many years they've been hanging out with Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't you get it yet? I mean, he said that in verse 21. Don't you understand yet? Don't forget what was taking place in Jeremiah's day. They were so focused on themselves, they didn't sacrifice or risk anything. I don't want you to be like that, Jesus is saying. We just upped the ante a little bit. From a nice soft snowball to you have to risk a little bit. Track it with me? Let's keep going because it's going to get even more intense. Verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and to heal him. 
Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and then, spitting on the man's eyes, <laughs> uh, Mike, you want to make that sound? Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Don't make a spitting sound. Spitting on a man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? Now the man looked around and he said, Yes, I see people, but they, I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Now then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were completely opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. So Jesus sent him away, saying, Don't go back into the village on your way home. All right. Another blind man, another prescription for spit and spittle, and another time where Jesus says, don't tell anybody what happened. So we could be sitting here listening, thinking, ah, I've heard this story before. I'm going to check the scores. I'm going to look at Facebook. I'm, we're just going to let James get by this portion. But don't check out yet, because momentum is building, and it's actually building in just verse 22. Just verse 22, when the people, when they arrived at Bethsaida, The people brought the blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch the man and heal him. We're seeing momentum starting to build. Okay, we're seeing the risk of a playful snowball fight move towards a full-on like avalanche of a snowball fight. If you don't know, Mark chapter eight really everything uh, is, is the pivotal point in this in this gospel. Everything kind of builds up to it, and then uh, we start heading towards Jerusalem. So it is, it's, it's key in this entire story. And I actually think the, the, the momentum really picks up in verse 22. Bethsaida, who lived there? Anybody remember? It's okay if you don't. According to John's gospel, uh, John chapter 1, verse 43 and 45, three of the disciples lived there. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida. Andrew and Peter's hometown. All right, so three of the 12 were from Bethsaida. Now, something else happened near Bethsaida, not according to Mark's gospel, but according to Luke's gospel. The feeding of the 5,000 happened right near that. Luke 9, 10, and 11. When Jesus, or when the apostles had returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. They slipped, then he slipped quietly away with them towards the town of Bethsaida. And the story goes on that Jesus saw a crowd, and he felt sorry for him, and then he fed the 5,000. All right, so, so we got this momentum starting to build. Jesus is in the boat, they're rowing, and he's telling them, you're going to have to sacrifice, you're going to have to risk, and oh, by the way, we're going home. Peter, Andrew, Philip, we're, we're, going, we're going home. Now, who watched American Idol? Anybody? Singing show, you don't have to be ashamed of yourself if you do. I watch it. Anybody else? Just one? Okay, so you and I are going to be the only ones who understand the significance of this story, but that's okay. I'll talk right to you. When all the contestants get from like however many thousands down to three, the contestants get to go home. That's always a fun episode because, you know, their hometown has been voting for them to get through to the next stage. Anybody else tracking with me? It's just you and me. We, we got this. You got it, okay? They throw parades. They make signs. They go to their high schools. It is a tremendous amount of fun. And I have to wonder if Peter and Andrew and Philip were thinking that that's what was going to take place because they're going home, 
right? They, they've been hanging out with Jesus for two or three years. Uh, they've seen him do a lot of healings, a lot of miracles, a couple of really big picnics, and they even got sent out to go different places and heal and cast out demons and preach the good news. So more than likely, news had spread to their hometown. Their hometown had been voting for them to keep going through to the next level, right? They, they wanted them to succeed, and now these three come home, and maybe these three are anticipating a parade and anticipating signs that say, yay, keep going, you're doing a good job. Or maybe... They knew the risk of going home because they were hanging out with a wanted man. Do you think that, I mean, everybody would have known them. Everybody would have known their name, right? Cue the Cheers theme song. And as they walked in, hanging out with Jesus, who multiple people wanted to kill, multiple different groups wanted to kill, do you think they wanted signs put up? Do you think they wanted cheering to take place? No, I think when they pulled up to Bethsaida, they're like, hey, Jesus, can we stay in a boat? Like, they're going to know me. They're going to know I'm with you. You just talked about us risking. This is too much. We go from a nice little snowball tossed at a two-year-old. It's getting bigger. It's getting more. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples then left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. It would have been about a 10-hour walk. When's the last time any of you walked 10 hours? It's a long way to walk, okay? As they were walking along, he said to them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied. Some people say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you are one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Although for the last three years, they had been telling everybody about Jesus. So then all of a sudden we hear this and he's like, don't tell anybody. Like, keep it to yourself. Why? Well, we hear the term Messiah and we think of fun praise songs, right? We think of a felt board characters. We think of, of a composer, Handel's Messiah. And we think of Jesus. And for us, 2,000 years later, it's like, oh, good, Messiah, we understand that. But when Peter said Messiah, that was a very loaded political term. It meant anointed one. It meant you are the person who's going to come and redeem and restore uh, Israel to its rightful place. You're the one who's going to kick out all of our oppressors, and you're going to be the one who sets God's people back apart like we have meant to be all along. That was a loaded statement for Peter to say. For Peter to say that out loud was a huge risk. And that's part of why Jesus didn't want them to tell anybody, because he knew that as soon as Messiah got out there, you know, forget the playful snowball fight. It was gonna, it's gonna go all out. There was gonna be, you know, rocks stuck in the snowballs and avalanche starting to happen. So Jesus says, don't, don't tell anyone. But then he looks at his disciples and he keeps talking. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around, and he, and he looked at his disciples, and then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. You're saying things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Jesus invites risk, but he requires sacrifice. And he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. 
He's telling his disciples, look, this is, this is hard. This is, this is going to be painful, but I'm going to do it first. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. You don't understand it. It's from God's perspective. You're looking at it just from human perspective, but my risk and my sacrifice will be worth it. And then we get the kicker. Verse 34. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In these first 11 weeks of this sermon series, in the first seven chapters, I've been very open and upfront that I have not seen Jesus turn anybody away yet, right? He's been inviting anybody that God brings across his path into relationship. He's been engaging with them. He has been talking with them, healing them, helping them. He hasn't turned anybody away. Now, granted, there has been somebody, some people who have chosen not to accept the invitation, but he has not said no to anyone. And now we get to this pivotal point in the gospel of Mark. We get to this tipping point where the snowball that you've been throwing gets pushed over the side of a mountain and it starts building momentum and it's about to cause a lot of damage and cause, you know, some energy and, and an avalanche. Jesus says, if you're going to accept my invitation, if you're going to grab my hand as I reach it across the line in the sand, if you're going to leave with full bellies and with healed fevers and with no more demons in you, if you are going to follow me, it's going to require sacrifice. So he ups the ante from, I love you, experience the kingdom now, to this is serious business. Following me takes risk and Sacrifice. Now, not only does he say, I invite sacrifice, he demands it. If any of you want to follow me, you must give up your own way, take up your own cross, and follow me. These first 11 sermons, if anybody heard them, maybe they would be encouraged. Good, Jesus loves me no matter who I am, where I'm at, what, what place I'm at in life. Maybe they would be challenged because, oh wow, I didn't realize Jesus was accepting them. Maybe I should accept them too. After this week, we go beyond warm and fuzzy, right? And we're entering into a Christmas season where Jesus is warm and fuzzy. The Jesus in the manger, and it's, it's kosher to say Jesus is the reason for the season. And, you know, you're going to get all sorts of celebrities using the name Jesus in the next four weeks. But Jesus pushes beyond that in Mark chapter 8. He's not inviting us to come make snow angels in his front yard. He's inviting us to enter into the full-on snowball fight that, that is following Jesus. Take up your cross. Give up your own way. Lose your life for my sake. This snowball fight just got real, didn't it? If we truly begin to take Jesus seriously, all these last 12 weeks of, look who he's inviting, look who he's, in, what he's welcoming in, it, it becomes more and more real to us. And yes, following Jesus can be exciting, it can be fun, but it can also be extremely challenging, difficult, painful, it can cause damage But Jesus didn't just say, come like me. He didn't just say, come post about me. He said, come follow me. And if you follow me, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take risk. 
If any of you wants to be my follower, you must take up your own cross, give up your own way, and follow me.